Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds of investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisich. How you going Mark? Going well thanks Chris, how about you? Busy Sunday in the middle of reporting season, keen to get stuck in. July and August are our busiest time of year, with most of our companies reporting results during this period. Accordingly, this episode will be compact. No time for book reviews, so Discovery's bookshelf will just be a feature of a couple of podcast episode recommendations. Markets rallied in July, do you want to share your thoughts on how things went? July was a solid month for markets, as investors shared stronger economic growth data and reduced inflation. The concerns around recession faded and investors who were lightly positioned were reluctantly forced to increase exposure. The Founders Fund finished up a strong 10.9% in July, as many of our companies updated the market with results. This compares to the index which was up 3.2% in NZD terms. To put things in context, in the 10 months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 44.6% versus the benchmark up 7.3% in NZD. August is reporting season and we'll have full year reports from our Australian companies and a plethora of company calls and meetings before we head over to Australia in the first week of September to visit company management teams in person. Chris, do you want to talk to one of the companies which performed well during the month? Contributing to performance in July was offshore service vessel operator MMA Offshore or ticker MRM. MRM provides vessels which service the offshore oil, gas and wind markets. MRM re-rated in July after it advised that earnings for this year will be in the range of 66 to 68 million, an increase of over 100% on the prior year. MRM noted that an increase in the number of offshore projects combined with a shortage of OSVs had driven up the day rates for OSV operators. We've carried out extensive industry channel checks on the OSV market, probably to the point that Mark could run one of these businesses, and there's a couple of key points. High level, we believe we're in the early innings of the OSV upcycle. I'll touch on the demand side. In July, oil demand surpassed the previous peak oil level that was reached in 2019, pre-COVID, with a demand of 102.5 million barrels per day. That's with global air traffic still 10 to 15% short of the pre-COVID peak. The International Energy Agency has now forecasted that global oil demand will increase a further 3 to 4% per annum over the next five years. Offshore capex cycles are five to seven years. There was a lack of project sanction between 2015 to 2019 due to the rise of shale. Offshore was recovering in 2019, but COVID introduced a hiatus. Feedback is that 2023 is sizing up as one of the top year of projects sanctioned in a decade which means 24, 25 are packed for OSVs. This snowball, which is only gaining momentum, you would need oil to be below $55 for them to pull off the gas. That's just oil and gas. What's different about this cycle is that the additional demand from renewables, the energy transition is underpinning high demand for offshore wind projects, with capacity forecast to increase tenfold from 34 gigawatts in 2020 to 330 gigawatts by 2030. That's the demand side. Let's talk supply. There's two dimensions to the supply equation. First, boats. There's been an absence of new builds since 2014 as shale oil in the US put offshore development on ice. Despite the recovery in offshore projects, 
new boats still aren't being built. Why is that? A common reason cited is that OSV operators are still suffering PTSD after their near-death experience between 2014 to 2020. The real reason is that there's no money in new builds yet. This has been a consistent theme from our meetings, but let's do the math. Take an MPSV like MRM's Pinnacle, that's one of their bigger boats. Assume the new build costs $65 million. If we assume a 95% utilisation, which is bullish, for a 15 year life, and a return on investment of say 12%, day rates would need to increase 50% from the current levels justified, just to justify the build. The reality is you may use the vessel longer than 15 years, but you're not going to have your vessel contracted at 95% utilisation for 15 years. So even if there was appetite and the economics stacked up, there's no bank funding and the shipbuilding capacity was destroyed since the last peak. Shipyards in Korea are sold out through 2024 building tankers to move LNG from the US to Germany. Even if you press the button today, it would still take over 18 months to build a new vessel. To put that in perspective, during the last cycle they were building over 300 new vessels per year. There hasn't been a new ship ordered in years. That's why recent tenders in the Middle East that are coming out are waiving the requirement for vessels to be less than 15 years old. The second element of the supply side is the one that's often overlooked, and that's personnel. Even if you had a boat, anecdotally the real struggle now is finding qualified and competent personnel. Any thoughts on how the OSV industry is responding to demand? Consolidation in the industry is likely a further dynamic as many OSVs are held by companies that are still over indebted or are not natural holders, e.g. banks who have undertaken debt for equity swaps in recent years. Tidewater is the leading US listed player and they have been the most active in recent M&A buying relatively young and high spec OSVs at great prices. Secondly, acquisitions have been able to be made at prices far below replacement value. Tidewater made the highly opportunistic purchase of Swire Pacific's offshore 50 vessel fleet for $190 million in March 22 and those vessels mainly operate in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And then more recently they made the $577 million acquisition of Solstad's offshore PSV vessels and Solstad's based in Norway and the vessels mainly operate in the North Sea. Tidewater now also has the US debt markets open to it, putting them in the box seat to acquire other large portfolios of boats that become available. The OSV market is still heavily fragmented and geographically segregated due to cabotage rules. Tidewater is less than 10% of the total global fleet. There are benefits to scale on owning a larger fleet, and M&A makes sense rather than committing to new builds given the discount to replacement costs, especially considering the high cost of debt, requirement for upfront deposits, and long lead times as Chris said, given the lack of capacity for new shipbuilding. What does this mean for utilisation and day rates? Clarkson's published a rate index for high specification platform service vehicles, or PSVs. West Africa is the best source of reference for the APAC region. In March 2019, it cost $13,000 US per day for an 800 square meter PSV. In December 2022, the index had risen to about 22.5k per day. It's now sitting at 28.5k per day. That's over a 20% increase in six months. And our channel checks suggest that this sort of rate increase is just set to continue. That obviously raises the question. Do energy companies start capping activity because OSV pricing is too high? We don't think so. Offshore rigs cost about 1 million to 1.5 million per day. OSVs are about 2 to 4% of that cost. 
we like the setup where you have inputs which are essential but a small proportion of the total cost. We got a glimpse of the setup in MRM's trading update. Despite a quiet third quarter and lower subsea activity, MRM produced a stronger second half than the seasonally stronger first half. OSVs are run rate businesses, so Q4 bodes well into financial year 24. In terms of financial year 24, management are quick to anchor people to the 20% return on assets MRM achieved in the last cycle, which would mean EBITDA goes north of $90 million, well above recently updated consensus expectations of $78 million. We believe the need to increase rates to stimulate new build demand will demonstrate these are highly conservative assumptions. To put it crudely, the market is significantly underestimating MRN's earnings potential in financial year 24. With little tax, minimal capex, MMA will be gushing cash. That bodes well for capital allocation. With limited franking credits, a buyback would make the most sense here. We look forward to the upcoming result. Look, we don't get everything right, and that was the case with TLUX this month. Do you want to elaborate on how things went? Telex was a detractor. Telex is a radio pharmaceutical company that aims to develop diagnostic, think imaging, and therapeutics therapy to combat cancer, particularly prostate, renal, and brain. Telex is an Australian success story. It listed at 128 million market cap in 2017, which had no revenue at the time. And fast forward to today, Telex is valued at 3.5 billion and is annualizing $480 million revenue. We were attracted to Telex as it met the four Ps. Firstly, potential. Telex flagship product, Elucix. Is a, Elucix is a molecularly targeted radiation product which allows clinicians to see cancer visually with a PET scanner. You couldn't do that previously and clinicians now love it. Elucix, together with its competing product, Clarify, are rapidly taking share in the US 1.6 billion PSMA pet imaging market in the US. In addition, Telex has a deep pipeline of R&D products. In particular, a renal imaging product with a 500 million USD TAM, which should launch in late FY24. With no competition, this product alone has the potential to drive sales of up to 200 million in a year one. On top of imaging products in renal and brain, Telex also has therapeutic products in development. Secondly, predictability. Cancer imaging is a predictable market and operates independent of the economic cycle. Thirdly, people. Telex was founded in November 2015 by current CEO Chris Berenbrook and Dr. Andreas Kluj. Chris and Andreas are strongly aligned with 15% of the shares on issue. And lastly, profitability. From zero revenue at listing in 2017, Telex is annualizing 480 million revenue. It's forecast to achieve $80 million EBITDA this financial year versus a loss of $69 million last year. Telex's share price has risen 60% this calendar year. Telex's re-rated in April as the market significantly upgraded the revenue and earnings potential for its flagship product Delusix in the US market. The reaction to July's update was more mixed. Telex reported $120.7 million in Elucix sales in the second quarter, with US sales up 17% quarter on quarter in constant currency. With cost well controlled, EBITDA for the first half looks to be on track for about $34 million. Importantly, Telex ended the quarter with $132 million in cash, which means that it's in the inviolable position of being able to fully fund its deep development pipeline without the need for further capital. Do you want to talk to the pipeline? Yeah, so a lot of the future value on Telex comes down to the prospects of the cancer therapy program, aside from the diagnostics, which Chris has just talked to. The first therapy being pursued by Telex is in prostate cancer, which follows on from the successful diagnostic launch. 
Telex therapy is an antibody that targets PSMA, which is a protein that is found on the surface of prostate cancer cells. Bound to this antibody is lutidium, a radioisotope that emits beta radi radiation to kill prostate cancer cells. Chris, why is there so much focus on the therapeutics? It all comes down to profit. The therapeutics are important because of the much higher prices that are achievable selling therapeutic doses than diagnostics. For example, in the US, a therapeutic for prostate cancer could sell for over $100,000 per dose, whereas the diagnostic only sells for approximately $5,000. Telix is currently commencing a trial called the Prostax series of studies. We will see the data readout for the Prostax Select Phase 2 trial, which is a smaller trial with Australian patients and is expected in the second half of 2023. The larger Prostax Global Phase 3 trial is also ongoing with enrolment for patients to begin shortly. However, this has been significantly delayed from first timelines and perhaps this is an indication of potential issues around the Phase 2 trial results. Mark, what do you reckon are the potential issues with Telex's therapeutic? Well, to briefly explain here, there, there are two competing therapy approaches for prostate cancer. First is a monoclonal antibody-based approach, which is Telex's therapy, and the other is a small molecule approach. Small molecules have shorter radiation half-lives and rapid renal elimination, so express less lingering radiation to the body. However, they also require higher doses as the radiation rapidly depletes and a lot of the dose is wasted. On the other hand, monoclonal antibodies are better at targeting prostate cancer tumours and have a longer circulation life. However, on the downside, this creates toxicity issues, a potentially life-threatening side effect where a decrease in bone marrow and blood cells can lead to infection, bleeding or anemia. Up till now, toxicity levels from these treatments have been considered unacceptable. However, Telex have been adjusting dosing levels down and pacing dosing schedules to address this. We'll wait to see the results of the phase two trial shortly as a pivotal determination of whether toxicity, toxicity levels can be reduced to tolerable levels. If Telex passes the first hurdle and a phase three is also a success, we're likely to expect commercialization sometime in the 2027 timeframe. This brings us to the levelling up section of our podcast, Discovery's Bookshelf. What do you have for us today? Well, this month we've got a, a podcast, uh, a bit quicker than a, a book review. The podcast I listened to this month I thought was great was Seth Klarman from the Balpost Group on Capital Allocators. So Seth Klarman, he's quite reclusive. He, he recently edited the seventh edition of Graham and Dodd's Value Investing Classic Security Analysis, and that was good enough to get him on the podcast circuit recently. So a few tidbits from the podcast. Firstly, Balpost, they look for inefficiencies in the market and they shift their time to focus on these areas. Inefficiencies are generally a result of supply demand imbalances in the market. And this could be things like stocks falling out of an index um, and fishing where less people are playing. That's likely to lead to mispriced stocks. Secondly, a lot of people do deep work. However, they're hunting in areas of the market that are not necessarily mispriced. Most of the time the market is efficiently priced. He suggests you're not going to make money outsmarting people on widely followed stocks. He also makes a case it is more attractive buying the stocks that are outside of an index because you're buying the same cash flows for a cheaper valuation and you get the potential value upside once those stocks do get included in the index. On position sizing, he says they take higher weighting positions when there is a presence of a catalyst. Without a Catalyst and asset may remain undervalued or cheap for a long period of time and being early and being wrong can look the same. Overall, I highly recommend this podcast as its frequency of appearing on podcasts is about once a decade. So do listen to it. 
My recommendation is pure entertainment purposes. Masters in Business episode with Jaywad Miwan on global investment research. Macro research is generally jibber-jabber, but Jaywad has a counter-consensus perspective which challenges standard thinking. I'll leave it up to you to take a listen. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX. I'll kick it off. Today I've got a leader. It's a stock which is up 87% for the month, but is still down 47% over the last year and down 81% on a two-year basis. That stock is Redbubble. Redbubble, through its brands Redbubble and TeePublic, is the world's largest print-on-demand marketplace. Essentially, it facilitates the sale and purchase of art and designs on a range of products, things, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, between artists and consumers. Redbubble pays a commission to the artist, think 15 to 18%, and outsources the supply chain to print-on-demand providers, making a gross margin of about 35 to 40%. Let's start with the history. Redbubble's listed life has seen more trouble than the NRL after Mad Monday. Redbubble IPO'd at $1.33 in 2016 on a 1.2 times EV to rev multiple, but remained off the radar of most investors until COVID in 2020. Prior to COVID, Redbubble really had a year where the share price didn't rise or fall by 30%. The inability to transform itself from a single purchase gifting business into a platform which generates repeat usage left it open to high customer churn, rising cost of customer acquisition, and changes in the Google algorithm. COVID transformed Redbubble from Red Trouble into Red Double overnight. In FY20, Redbubble produced 349 million of revenue and just 5 million of EBITDA. A year later, this was 554 million of revenue and $53 million of EBITDA. Redbubble's share price followed its earnings, rising from a dollar in January 2020 to the giddy heights of $7.30 in February 2021. However, less than 18 months later, it was back at 80 cents. What happened? COVID provided scale which temporarily disguised the rising cost of customer acquisition. In FY17, Redbubble's cost to acquire a dollar of GTV was 7 cents. This rose rapidly pre-COVID but was masked by a growing gross profit margin as Redbubble used its increasing scale to negotiate better terms with its suppliers. Gross margins were supercharged during COVID, but unfortunately, so did the cost of acquiring customers, increasing 156% between FY20 and the first half of FY23. By the first half of 23, Redbubble's cost per dollar of GTV was 16 cents. Unfortunately, the rising cost of customer acquisition occurred as the top line went backwards, GP margins compressed, and Redbubble stepped up investment to try to transform itself into a platform. After sliding into an EBIT loss of $28 million in the first half of 23 on declining unit economics, Redbubble changed tact. The attempt to transform Redbubble into a platform appears to have ended with the resignation of Michael Selinsky and the reappointment of founder Martin Hosking as CEO in March 2023. Let's bring to the present. Do you want to discuss why it went up during the month? Yes, Redbubble received an important ruling in July regarding IP infringement. Brands had argued that Redbubble is the true seller, not the artist, and is therefore liable for any IP infringement that occurs on its website. For example, an artist uses a Star Wars character on a t-shirt without Disney's permission. Redbubble was advised in July that the US Court of Appeal had upheld a prior ruling that Redbubble is not the seller and therefore not liable for artists who infringe copyright laws without the company's knowledge. The ruling was great news for Redbubble, removing an overhang risk in the stock.
it's certainly removed an overhang. What are the thoughts on Redbubble today? Well, on the positive side, firstly, Redbubble is the market leader in print on demand with negative working capital model and scale, which provides significant benefits. Secondly, Redbubble introduced artist tiers. Artist tiers involve charging lower quality artists to list work on Redbubble or TeePublic. This should improve gross profit for Redbubble as certain artists are paid less and also increases the quality of content on the marketplace. Thirdly, Redbubble announced a $33 million cost out optimization program, which should see its cash flow neutral in FY24. Providing trading conditions don't deteriorate further, this should eliminate the need for a cap raise. And lastly, TeePublic, which represents 30% of revenue, continues to grow with positive website trends over the last two months. That's on the positive side. On the negative side, print-on-demand competition is intensifying, with Printful and Printify offering print-on-demand fulfillment capabilities integrated into other marketplaces such as Etsy. Secondly, Amazon's merch-on-demand allow, already allows artists to upload designs. Whilst not technically print-on-demand and not broken out separately, suffice to say Amazon's 2.7 billion views per month eclipses Redbubble's 50 million views. Redbubble still also makes a significant margin on delivery, and it's difficult to see how this continues in the long term. These points I've highlighted dance around the core issue, which is that Redbubble remains a gifting business with high customer churn, vulnerable to rising CAC, and Google algorithm changes. Balancing the two, the baseline is that founder marketing Hosking is back and he knows how to make money. Trading 0.4 times market cap to sales, let's ignore the cash because Redbubble's probably going to need it all, versus peers trading at around 1 times, the risk reward is probably skewed in favour of a trade. However, history carries a warning. Traders make money, investors lose their shirt. Too bad to Redbubble, not more of those investors are shopping on their marketplace. Moving on to the laggard for the month. Big Tin Can, BTH.ASX was a laggard. In a month when the ASX All Tech Index performed strongly, BTH has done the opposite. Mid-month, BTH released a business update. The result had three components to it. Firstly, they reiterated guidance for financial year 23 for revenue of 123 to 128 million. They also said they were cash flow break even in Q4 and adjusted EBITDA exceeded $5 million. All very good. Secondly, they announced an acquisition of Modus, which is a sales engagement company focused on the manufacturing industry for US $9.5 million. However, they mentioned if you include the ARR from that acquisition of $7.5 million, they would also be in the range for their annualized recurring revenue guidance of 137 to 143. This implies they handsomely missed that target for financial year 23. Naughty, naughty, Big Tin Can. Lastly, Big Tin Can borrowed $15 million from Regal Funds. They borrowed this at a 12% interest rate with a 4% establishment fee and also gave them 24 million options with a strike price they will end up being closer to 40 cents compared to the trading price at the time of around 50. This lending is more expensive than a used car loan from a loan shark in South Auckland. Big Tin Can also dangled the carrot that they continued to engage with a number of parties who have indicated interest in a potential control transaction at prices slightly above the indicated price of 80 cents as previously announced. These takeover rumours have been around since December 22 but nothing has been put to shareholders yet. So there was something for everyone in the business update but more scepticism than positivity. Chris, what was your take? Probably three points. Firstly, a big tank can really was free cash flow positive in the fourth quarter from reducing costs and this was sustainable. 
why would they need to borrow an expensive debt which is also highly diluted to shareholders? Secondly, if a potential control transaction was likely, Big Ten Can wouldn't be doing acquisitions or issuing expensive options, and the shares wouldn't be trading at such a large discount to the 80 cents, which is the price indicated uh, where bidders have interest. Thirdly and finally, it's not clear why the company couldn't actually guide to where they would land for the full year post-balance date, or at least just tighten the range. What we do know is that they added less than 7 million ARR in the second half, as they were not within the guidance range without the acquisition contribution. This is lower than the first half ARR contribution, and lower than expectations, given that the June quarter is a key selling period, and Big Tin Can had currency tailwinds from a stronger US dollar. Big Tin Can has a history of making acquisitions which bolt on revenue and earnings, so it's difficult to reconcile true organic growth. They also changed their long-standing order to KPMG three days before the end of balance date, which could just be a coincidence. It seems a logical outcome would be for the company to accept the bid here. Whether the company board and management would do so seems unlikely, as they have already spurned bidders at 80 cents. Shopping for discounts in tech stocks is like shopping for cheap goods on Temu or AliExpress. Generally, things are cheap for a reason, and you get what you pay for. Big Tin Can screams incredibly cheap at just 1.6 times financial year 24 revenue, nearly all of which is recurring. But the only short-term upside for investors seems to be a takeout, which will be up to the major shareholders to put enough pressure on the board to accept the bid. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.